uh, going through an overview of the Old Testament. So we spent four months to go through the Old Testament. After that, we spent two months in Matthew up, up to where we are tonight. So that's four months on 39 books of the Bible. Then about two months on four chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. And tonight we're going to come to a screeching halt. And for the next eight weeks, we're going to focus on the eight Beatitudes. So we're going to take eight weeks to cover about uh, 10 or 12 verses. So for those of you who have been saying, you're going too fast, you're going too fast, you're going too fast, the next eight weeks are for you. And those of you that want us to go faster, we'll just have to, you know, count the days. The reason why we're doing this is because we really want to focus in on what Jesus says to us in the Beatitudes. These kind of are representative of the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, so we just really want to hone in and understand what their meaning is for us. Now, before we jump into the Beatitude we're covering tonight, the first Beatitude, let's talk for a bit about what, what the structure of the Beatitudes is, what, what they are as a unit, and first of all, like, what in the world does the word, the word Beatitude mean? It's not a word that we use in everyday conversation. You know, the other day I saw Jason outside of his house, and if I would have rolled down the window and said, Jason, I hope you have a day full of beatitude, he probably would have looked at me pretty strangely. Or if on my wife's birthday or anniversary I said, Hun, I just hope that today is a day of beatitude. If I can do that for you, then I will have succeeded. She would probably look at me in the way that she looks at me when I say a lot of other strange things. So the word beatitude is is strange to us. It means supreme blessedness or exalted happiness. It means that these people who are, uh, I guess, given a beatitude upon them are blessed by God. So we call these first uh, verses of the Sermon on the Mount the Beatitudes because Jesus is pronouncing blessings on these groups of people. He's saying that these people who do these things or are these things are blessed by God in a way that people who don't do these things aren't. So that's what the Beatitudes are. And let's go ahead and read them all. If you don't have a Bible, there's some at the end of the rows, and you'll find tonight's passage in those Bibles on page 809. We're in the first gospel, the book of Matthew, chapter 5. We're going to read verses 3 through 12. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, There's eight of these Beatitudes. We have one each verse until we get to verse 10, and then we have a couple verses after it which give further explanation for what it is. And one thing that we'll notice as we go through the Beatitudes is that uh, the first four Beatitudes focus on 
emptiness or, or the absence of something. So we have the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The emphasis is on what they're lacking. And the last four, uh, it focuses on fullness. They, they possess something. And so we see, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The emphasis is on the presence of something. So we have the absence of something in the first four, and the presence of something in the last four. Another thing that we'll see as we go through them is that in each of the four, each of the groups of four, they culminate in a focus on righteousness. So we have this emptiness, 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 emptiness. And then the fourth one focuses, focuses on the fact that they're empty of righteousness. So they're hunger, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. The second group of four, it focuses on the presence of righteousness in the last one. So they get to the end and they are persecuted for righteousness' sake. They're persecuted because they are righteous. And so as we go through this, we're, as we go through these, we're going to see this logical progression that, that builds on itself and we'll see these things emphasized by Jesus. So let's go ahead and read our text for tonight, the first beatitude, and we're going to go ahead and read verses 1 and 2 as well. So it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verses 1 and 2 are pretty self-explanatory. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on those. Last week... David talked about Jesus' miraculous ministry, these amazing things he did, and great crowds came and followed him because he was doing these things. And in response to the crowd, we see in this passage tonight that Jesus goes up on the mountain. He withdraws from the people, and his disciples come in around him, and then he starts to teach them. His focus in teaching is on his disciples, but the, the crowds would have been there as well, and so they would have overheard what he was saying. And so he opens his mouth and he teaches them. And the first thing he says is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For me, one of the most intimidating aspects of having children was the fact that when Dinah was born and when Sophia was born, that they were completely dependent upon Jen and I for everything. Every single need that they had needed to be met by someone other than them. They couldn't do anything to meet their own need. The only thing they were born with the ability to do that they needed was, was breathe in air and exhale it out. But even in that, they were dependent upon us because we had to make sure that they were in a place where they could breathe clean air, where they could get oxygen, where they wouldn't roll over in bed and suffocate. And so there were all these things that we had to think about as parents, and it freaked me out. You see, they can't do anything on their own. And this is why, why Dinah and Sophie and every other infant that's born into the world is born poor in the most basic sense of the word. They're born into a situation, into a state where they are completely dependent upon other people for everything. They don't have any means. They don't have any ability to meet their own needs. They need someone else to do it for them. The form of poverty that they face is very similar to what we face and what we'll see that we face in this text tonight. Just like they can't do anything for themselves, those who are spiritually poor, which Jesus is going to talk about, can't do anything. They, they can't change their standing before God. They don't have any way to affect whether he blesses them or not. They are 
just like Dinah and Sophie were. They are unable to do anything for themselves. And so the first beatitude teaches us that the kingdom belongs to those who can't enter it. That's the main point. The kingdom came for those who can't enter. They can't do anything. They don't know how. They don't have any means. They don't have any earthly idea what they need to do to get into the kingdom. And Jesus says that the kingdom came for them. We're going to see this by asking three questions tonight. We're going to ask, who are the poor? We're going to ask, who are the poor in spirit? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And we're going to ask, uh, what is the blessing that they are given? How are they blessed? So the first question, uh, who are the poor? To answer this question, the Bible really gives two answers. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of verses that deal with poor people in the Bible. They deal with poverty, with those in need. And there's essentially two groups, two types of these poor people. The first is those who, uh, they're, they're poor economically speaking. If you think about the rich, the poor are the opposite of that. So we have this verse in Proverbs 10:15. It says that a rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. So the guy writing the Proverbs, Solomon, is saying that the poor are the opposite of the rich. They don't have money, the rich do. The rich have wealth, the poor have poverty. But there's a second type of poverty. It's those who are poor uh, religiously or theologically. And we see this in Psalm 35.10. David says, All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. So David cries out. He says, all of my bones shall say. He's crying out with all that he is, and he's praising God because God cares for the poor, because God has a special love for those who can't do anything for themselves, who can't defend themselves. David praises God because of it. And this is all over the Psalms. You'll see this over and over again, that God has a special love for those who are poor. And just so you don't think that this is just an an Old Testament concept, James says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? So to answer our first question, the poor are those who experience economic poverty. They don't have money. They're not rich. They're also those who experience religious poverty. They're the those who are in special need of God's love and protection. So these poor people, the the poor are the low of the lowest. They can't provide anything for themselves. They can't do anything for themselves. And because of that, God has a special love for them. It's all over the Bible. A lot of you have probably heard it said that God helps those who help themselves. Well, what we really see in the Bible about the poor is that God helps those who can't help themselves. So that's what it means to be poor. That's who these poor people are. But but Jesus doesn't just say the poor. He says that they're poor in spirit. So let's let's look at what it means to be poor in spirit. Now before we talk about what it is to be poor in spirit, let's talk about what it's not. See, it's not a behavior or a virtue or an act. You know, it's not me walking around uh, all sad and, and downtrodden and just upset about my state in life. 
That's mourning. Jesus gets to that in verse 4. It's not me being humble or meek or serving others. Those are all good things. But Jesus gets to those in verse 5 when he talks about the meek. Being poor in spirit isn't a behavior. It's not an action. It's not a virtue. It's a state that people are in. It's, it's not something that we do. It's something that we are. So these people, they, they don't make themselves poor in spirit. They don't become poor in spirit. They don't act like they're poor in spirit. Jesus says that they are poor in spirit. It's, it's who they are. It's a description or a fact about them. So what's this, what's this state then? What's this state that we're in of being poor in spirit? Well, essentially, this is the status, the, the, the fact that we are spiritually bankrupt or, or spiritually poor. You've probably heard this called uh, our depravity. It means that uh, we are totally and utterly in need of God's help. This gets back to the main point of the passage, that the kingdom belongs to those who can't, who cannot, who don't have the ability to enter it. We can't, being poor in spirit means that we can't do anything on our own. If you read the Gospel of John, you'll see Jesus say over and over and over and over again that he can't do anything on his own. He can't do anything without the Father. And then when he gets to John 15, in John 15, 5, he tells his disciples and he tells us that we can't do anything apart from him. This also means that we're utterly unworthy before God. This means we, we can't do anything to merit His favor. We can't do anything to earn His blessing. Paul talks about this about as bluntly and as simply as he can in Romans 3.23. He says, For all, every single person that's ever lived, every human being that's been on the face of the earth, everybody in this room and everybody that will live, all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's glory. So we are completely unworthy of Him. And we can't earn any status with Him. We can't earn any favor with Him. We can't earn any blessing with Him. Just like when Sophie and Dinah were born. And they couldn't do anything on their own. We're just like that, spiritually speaking. We are all infants, spiritually We can't do anything to change the state we're in. But the best part about this verse is that it's not telling us to do anything. It's not saying be poor in spirit. It's saying that we are poor in spirit. It's not saying to act like we are poor in spirit. It's saying that you are. So recognize it and acknowledge it. So how do we apply this description of ourselves? This, this fact, this state. How do we apply that to our lives and, and do something? The text doesn't say that we have to do anything, but we probably should. I think at the most basic level that Jesus is, is telling these people, the crowds this, he's telling his disciples this, and he's telling us this through Matthew so that we'll recognize, so that we'll acknowledge our spiritual poverty before him. And when we realize when we really grasp and get our minds around what the human condition really is, it'll make the gospel that much sweeter to us. It'll make Christ's life and death that much more powerful to us. Paul says it this way. He says, 
the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now, Paul doesn't say the saying is trustworthy because he has a habit of, of making stuff up. He doesn't say it because he has a habit of saying things that, that aren't trustworthy and aren't deserving of full acceptance. He says it because he's saying, pay attention. He's saying, pay attention to what I am about to tell you because it's really, really important. And what's really crazy about this is that Paul has just finished giving this list of sins that most of us would call really, really bad sins. He talks about those who who strike their father and mother, those who hit their parents. He talks about those who murder, those who are sexually immoral, those who are in same-sex relationships, and then finally, those who sell people into slavery. Paul gives this list, then he talks about the grace of the gospel, then he says, I am the worst sinner. Don't we usually do the opposite? We say, oh, you know, I'm a sinner. I'm just as bad as the next guy. But I've never killed anybody. I don't make it a habit of beating up my parents. You know, no, nobody's perfect, but at least I don't sell people into slavery. I mean, I, I got that going for me. But Paul lists all these things, and he says, I am worse than them. Now, Paul isn't, he's not objectively comparing himself to all these people. First of all, he didn't know everybody in the world, so he couldn't quantify, I, I'm worse than anyone else. And even if he did, he couldn't walk up to somebody and say, okay, Tell me your sins and I'll tell you mine and then we'll weigh them against each other and we'll see who's worse. He wasn't doing that at all. But he also wasn't just exaggerating. He wasn't just saying this to make a point to Timothy. He was saying this because his focus wasn't outward like ours is most of the time when we talk like this. He was saying it because his focus was inward. He knew the depth of the depravity of his heart. He knew his sinful desires. He knew the dark and prideful motives that he had. And more than anything that he could ever know about anyone else, he knew what his own condition was. And because of that, he could say, Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I am the foremost. And what's crazy about this is that Paul... It was a seasoned missionary. He was an apostle. And he's writing the letter to Timothy, who, who's an elder of the church of Ephesus. So the, these, are, you know, these aren't new Christians. They aren't non-Christians. They aren't recent converts. They're these giants of the faith. And Paul talks about the gospel as if it's just as relevant for his life then as it was when he first accepted it. You see, the gospel isn't just the the key that gets us in the door of the Christian life. The gospel is the key and the door and everything that's inside. And this is important because this helps us, this demonstrates what poverty and spirit really looks like. When we see Paul living it out on the pages of the New Testament, we see what somebody who really grasps how deep their need for God is It impacts us. It infects us. When we see what it looks like, 
we know what it means for us to recognize our own spiritual poverty. Just like somebody who is economically poor, you know, people in our city, people in our world, who can't repay their debts, just like them, they don't, they don't have any, any way to pay off their creditors. We're in the same situation spiritually. We can't do anything to, to pay off God. This brings us to the third question. What is the blessing that these people are given? So we've, we've clearly heard what the bad news of this beatitude is. But where's the blessing? Where, where's the good part? The blessing is simple. It's that these people are blessed because even though they're poor in spirit, even though they're completely unable to do anything to earn blessing from God, he gives it to them anyway. He gives them the kingdom even though they can't do anything to enter it, even though they can't do anything to earn their way into it. He gives it to them. Jesus says that the kingdom belongs to those who are poor in spirit. One other thing we should notice here is the, the present tense of the verb. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Once we leave this beatitude and go on to the next, it's going to be, they will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. They shall receive mercy. And on and on and on and on it goes until we get to the tenth one, where we have again, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's saying that they have it now. They don't have to wait. They don't have to wait for for comfort or for mercy or for anything else because the kingdom is theirs now. And this gets into this this already not yet tension we've talked about over and over and over again, that some of the blessings of the kingdom are felt now because Jesus has brought it about with his presence on the earth. And so Jesus is telling the poor in spirit that the kingdom belongs to them even now, and it belongs to us even now. Now, before we think about how this blessing, how what Jesus says to these people connects to us and to our lives here tonight, let's think about how it connected to them, to that, to that first audience that, that's crowding in around Jesus. You see, some of the people in the crowds, many of them probably, were following Jesus because of the great things that he did. Uh, verse 25 at the end of chapter 4 talks about these crowds following him because of the works that he was doing. So they see Jesus heal somebody or, or provide food or cast out a demon. And they follow him because it's amazing and they want to see what he's going to do next. But some of the people were more devoted to him. Some of them followed him not because of what he was doing, but because of who they thought that he was. And many of them probably would have remembered the passages from the Old Testament that talk about what the Messiah would do when he came. Passages that said that the lame would walk and the deaf would hear and the blind would see and they thought that when they saw him do these things that maybe, just maybe, he was that guy. And then when they heard him announce that the kingdom had arrived, they would have rejoiced because finally this promise that they waited for for thousands of years had come to their people. But many in the crowds were poor. 
both economically and religiously. And so these poor people, as they crowded in around Jesus to hear what he was going to say, would have been wondering that even though the kingdom had come, even though it was there, even even though he was the Messiah and he was doing these things, would they have a place in the kingdom? You see, because they thought that the priests and the prophets and, and those who were in power and the wealthy, they thought that these people had access to God that they didn't have. And so just imagine that despair as they were sitting there waiting to hear what he was going to say and wondering if they were going to have any place in his kingdom and the very first thing he says answers the question that they've had. And he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is exactly what we need to hear tonight. Whether we've experienced the grace of the gospel or not, this is exactly what we need to hear. We can't do anything on our own to earn God's favor. We can't do anything to earn His blessing. We can't do anything to gain access into His kingdom. Nothing. And Christ told them, and through Matthew, He tells us that we don't have to do anything. There's nothing for us to do other than than recognize our state before Him and to thank God for our spiritual poverty. Thank Him that, that there isn't anything for us to do. Because He's already done it for us. The Bible tells us that He lived a life of perfect obedience before the Father. And that even though He was perfect, even though He was the opposite of poor in spirit, He took on all of our sin and all of our failures and all of our imperfection. He took on all of our spiritual poverty and paid the penalty that we were due for, for all of it. Paul explains it this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He became poor for us who actually are poor so that we could become rich like He is. And there isn't anything for us to do. There's, there's nothing for us to do. And that, I, mean, I guess that's kind of an anti-application. But there isn't anything. As we continue to go through the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see Jesus talk about what it looks like for us to live lives as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But for tonight, there's nothing. Because He has already done everything that we couldn't do for us. And our response should be to worship Him, to thank Him for that, to to rest in our spiritual poverty because He became poor so that we could become rich. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you created us poor in spirit. But that you didn't leave us that way. That you sent 
Your Son, that, that He became poor on our behalf so that we could earn Your blessing through Him, that He could earn it for us. God, I ask that You would help us to respond rightly to that truth. That You would help us grab hold of the spiritual richness we have in Christ. And to stop wallowing in our spiritual poverty. Father, we thank You for the truth of the Gospel. And that it's just as relevant for our lives tonight as it was the day we first believed it. Thank you for the gift of your Son and his grace and ask that you would help us to lay hold of it even as it lays hold of us. It's in your Son's name we pray.